Hi, you're listening to Spotlight Aisha, a podcast that shines a light on ideas that matter. Hello and thanks for listening to Spotlight Aisha. I am your host, François Barré. And I'm your co-host, Paola Fedokovska. And on today's special, the Spotlight will focus on IGA's 58th Annual Congress of 2020. We're going to go behind the scenes to know what makes up an interesting academic session at the largest event of our association. And you will hear after a selection of some of the best moments from the most awarded session last year, Diversity and Inclusion in Sustainable Property Development. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Paula Fudakowska, IGA Immediate Past President, as well as Alessia Giaccari from Italy and Eva Schwitek from Germany, key members behind the success of this session. Hello, everybody. This is Alessia Giaccari speaking from Italy. Hello. Thank you very much for having us. This is Eva Schwitek speaking from Germany. Thank you both for uh, joining us today. Um, And uh, thank you, Francois, for um, hosting uh, this session. Well, the reason we've uh, asked you to join us is because, of course, um, your session organised by the Real Estate Commission uh, won not only one but two awards at our first uh, virtual annual congress. Um, we were, of course, uh, online for the very first time in Aegis history uh, due to the pandemic, which meant that it was not possible for all our members from all over the world to gather in one place in person. But in fact, this offered a really interesting and innovative opportunity for us all to engage with each other in different ways and uh, come up with um, innovative sessions. So... Both of you were involved in the academic programme and moderating and organising uh, this panel, which won, as I said, um, the Academic Coordinators Award for the Best Diversity Session and also the Past Presidents Award for the quality of the content. Our members, especially those who are now planning an online event, must want to know, how did you do it? So starting, first of all, what are your top three tips for ensuring a good session with high quality content and speakers? And turning to you first, Alessia. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Francois, for this kind invitation. And we're very happy to share this wonderful experience we had at the, the, our first virtual annual congress in uh, last August. And uh, I would immediately start with my top three tips uh, to organize and run a successful panel. And um, the first one for me is uh, thinking out of the box. I suggest offering different perspectives and points of view and um, also playing diversity not only in terms of gender but also in terms of experiences and expertise. In fact, we decided to involve speakers from three different continents, Europe, Africa, Asia, and with different backgrounds and roles in the real estate project. A client, the final user of a shared residential building in Germany, Then we had an architect in Nairobi facing the lack of water and electricity. And finally, we had a lawyer expert in heritage buildings in Hong Kong. My second tip is keep always the speakers on board, always. Push them to participate actively to the panel and also to participate in giving their contribution to the panel. And not only giving them a topic to prepare the speech about. They are very important for the success of the discussion. My third tip is be flexible with the structure of the panel. 
I suggest adapting the structure to the speakers and not vice versa in order to avoid overlapping and too long speeches and most of all in order to give each of them her and his spotlight. This is my first main tips I would share, I would like and I'm happy to share with uh, all the Asia members. Thanks, Alessia. That's really interesting to hear. So um, turning to you, Eva, what are your um, thoughts on this? Thank you for the introduction and thank you very much also for, for giving us the possibility to speak about it. My first tip is um, what made the project real fun and also gave us the success is that uh, the starting point of our panel was a true fascination for the topic. So with our project, Randusa has lighted the spark for the topic of diversity in the real estate sector. Uh, we are very, very sad that she has died last December and could not follow through with the project because of her serious health issues and I'm very grateful that the spark she has lighted has led us through the whole project so throughout the project each one of us individually could contribute a project from our own country that was fascinating to ourselves and that fit the topic of diversity so that would be my first tip to have a real fascination for the topic and the second tip is that different cultures and different professions um, make a topic so much more interesting. Uh, showing different cultures is a no-brainer with Aisha because I think the Aisha spirit is very strong. It's cosmopolitan and very open-minded. But um, we had one add-on in our format what made it a bit more special because we interviewed um, professionals from different professions um, who were not lawyers. We had an artist speaking, we had an architect speaking, we gave them the legal background, but then we had their view on the topic. So that was very uh, diverse in itself. And the third tip is, uh, I think the panel got much more consistent because the topic of diversity was reflected not only in the content, but also in the format of the panel itself. So we reflected diversity within the limits of an online panel. For example, we showed a film. We had some very personal pictures shown by one of the speakers. Uh, the speakers shared very personal experiences and thus everyone had the chance to participate in a way that fit their own personality. And so we not only spoke about diversity, but we played out diversity in the panel itself. I think those are my three main tips. Thank you, Eva. That's um, really interesting um, to hear. And I think there's some uh, good food for thought there uh, for our members. And so um, how do you um, ensure that the content and the topic are what the audience is expecting? Um, Alessia, perhaps you could share your thoughts on this. Well, I would say, first of all, uh, not thinking about what the audience is expecting. And it could sound like a joke, but I do believe that you have to surprise them to catch their attention and give them something they do not expect, maybe a different perspective, a different way to approach and solve the problem, something that they can bring at home and think about it. I think this is our main goal. Maybe, most of all, you, will, you should also share with them your passion for the topic. In this way, the audience will naturally feel involved. If I had to summarize, to catch the audience, you should think diverse, share your passion, and uh, adapt the structure of the panel to the speakers, and not the speakers to the structure of the panel. This will create a more interesting discussion and, uh, and real exchange between 
speakers and moderators and the audience who's attending the, the panel. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And Eva, what are your thoughts? Yes, I would um, say that it is really important to be consistent and that that's what I already said. I think it's important to be diverse in the way you show ideas and the format you create should be diverse. Content should fit the format itself. And that is something that probably your audience will expect from you. And that makes it much more easier for them to understand what you are talking about also, I think. Great. Well, look, uh, thank you both so much um, for your thoughts and insights. Um, in terms of, I think, the top takeaways uh, from this session, um, it seems you're both agreed that a fascination for the topic is really important. Um, all of you who are involved in this project were really interested by what you were talking about, and that really came across in the session um, and rubbed off also in the interest of the audience uh, for the session. I think second of all, um, you talk about diversity, not only um, in terms of gender, but also culture and experiences. And um, having guest speakers from other professions, uh, you had an architect and an artist. And that, of course, is uh, very interesting for the audience, uh, which is predominantly made up of lawyers. And finally, um, a diversity of format. Uh, so perhaps considering different ways in which to communicate the message. Uh, via the medium of film, uh, photographs, and also personalising it so that we hear about the speaker's personal experiences to bring it all alive. Um, so thank you again for your contribution to this session. And um, I would, of course, also like to acknowledge, um, as you've already mentioned, the contribution of Branduza Tataru Marinescu, um, who was a very active AIJA member for a relatively short period of time and really made a huge contribution to this session, which you have um, and you've decided to uh, honour both the awards that you received in her memory, which is a wonderful gesture. So thank you for that. Over to you, Francois. Thank you so much. And now it's time to hear some of the best moments of this said session. Before that, I would like to remind you that you can always listen to more of our podcasts by searching Spotlight IGA in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget, the 59th Annual Congress will take place from the 24th to the 28th of August in Zurich. And the topic is Innovation, Exploring Tomorrow's Legal World. And I hope to see you all there. Coming to the topic, we all know that whilst the lack of diversity and particular inclusion are no longer topics discussed by human resource specialists only, are now moving at the top of business agendas across all industries. They are particularly relevant for the real estate construction and legal businesses. Our gender, age, cultural heritage and social background shape our model of thinking and our consumer habits with take shape in architectural design, in city planning. By involving professionals with diverse backgrounds, the real estate construction and legal businesses could become breeding grounds for new and creative ideas which tackle current issues such as sustainability of living and working areas. At a time when more than ever attitudes toward equality, diversity, and behavioral norms in the workplace are under scrutiny, the property development, the property development world is catching up and is yet fully take advantage of the business potential deriving from diversity and inclusion. Furthermore, within 
and we believe that not caring about diversity creates generational and racial segregation, poverty, illness, and makes communities, entire communities disappear. With this session, we will travel across three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, to bring some examples of the real estate project or some real estate projects oriented to diversity, inclusion, and sustainability from these different perspectives. So let's start our journey from Germany, Europe, with Eva and Wayne. She's going to interview Wayne Goetz, that is a German-Slovenian actor, mover, and choreographer, as well as a business coach for startups and innovative processes. He has a diploma in physics and currently studies physical theater at Volkswagen University of Arts, building on more than 10 years of experience in improvisation theater and other artistic fields. Together with a group of about 70 persons of every age, Wayne has realized a communal and self-organized residential project in Heidelberg, Germany. The two buildings of this project contain apartment units as well as shared space that are used for, for various social, political, cultural, and ecological activities, strengthening both the residential community and the neighborhood surrounding it. The residential project has joined a network following concept that takes the building off the normal real estate market and aims at providing long-lasting affordable living space by private initiative. They are also part of a cooperative covering their demand for renewable, renewable electricity partly by local produced energy. What we did is um, there's a so-called Mietshäuser Syndikat, which is a, yeah, a group or a company or something similar to that, which is uh, um, working in entire Germany. And now the idea is also spreading to France, Denmark and Belgium. And um, the idea of this company is that we, as a, as, as a group, buy a house together with them. And they have, um, and the idea with it is that if they are, uh, are part of our house, we are not allowed to sell it because they always can say no. And this made it uh, to this very unique project because the, the building itself is now away from the market. So we own it, but at the same time, we don't own it, which is this weird situation because we as a, um, living there, we are allowed to do everything with the house. We are responsible for it. Like we, we did a lot of the work, we physically worked actually in the house, created the new spaces and um, yeah, built um, actually walls and the terrace and the stage for the garden. But we have this um, company from, yeah, which is actually sitting in another place, but, um, and they have this minority that we will never ever sell the house. So I think there is a limited liability company behind it, which owns the house. And then there's a share that really stops you from selling it, right? For us, we, in, in our um, area, there are several other um, buildings who are also like social wise orientated. And we realize because of this property um, we have and the discussions we have, like based on the concerns, um, gave us another reflection on our own, yes, perspective so we didn't sometimes we discussed a lot about does a kitchen have the dishwasher or not is it something necessary for everyone or not and stuff like this really gave everybody the chance to grow into this uh, concept of making decisions and also to um, ask yourself what is it i really need or i really want we have several rooms we have this um, um, event room where we meet with other people we have a space where like environmental like groups can come 
they don't have to pay and they can discuss about sustainability, urban gardening, um, um, yeah, like the several queer, we have the several groups and then you stay in contact and you invite your neighbors and we have the summer festival where we invite all the people and we have a, we needed money from other people so other people are invested in our house and so they come sometimes for the festival or for the for some events and then this is a very interesting way to get in contact with other people and also in a normal building where I also live it's hard to knock at the door of somebody of your neighbor but in our place we actually have I don't know how you call it, we really can just go in because you don't need a key to enter the rooms so this is um, this is just different yes. what I really would like to mention is that we have for example a room where you can put your stuff you don't need and then everybody who goes into even if it's not somebody living in our place just can take it so it's a gift room and um, then we have a party room and, um, and we have a room where we um, share stuff like the, that not everybody needs a well toast is not the best uh, example but stuff like this fondue I don't know like so you put it over there and then you can just take it to clean it and then you bring it back. So we try to minimize in the concept of living um, our own needs. And therefore we have also this guest apartment, which the entire building can use. You have to write yourself in a calendar. But the consequence we wanted was that not every bigger apartment has a, an additional guest room. So we, we, we said, okay, now we minimize our own living standards and we have a guest apartment for everyone. So even if you're living in a, in a shared uh, apartment and you have just one room, you have the access to a um, guest apartment. Proceed our journey through the continents and move to Africa. And I leave to Eva the honor to present uh, Evelyn and George. So today we are joined, I am Evelyn Bulanzuki, a principal attorney at Emil Legal, a law firm here in Nairobi, Kenya. And I'm joined by George Arabu, a, an architect as well from Nairobi, Kenya. And he's also the vice chair at um, the Association of Architects in Kenya as well. And my first question with you is, um, how inclusive and diverse uh, is the Kenyan property scene, uh, in your opinion? And number two, do you think that we can speak authoritatively as being sustainable? in this particular context of property development in your capacity as an architect? The only difference is that in our case, uh, what motivates us mostly is financial because um, what people are realizing, the cost of land, for example, in this country is very high and uh, it only makes sense for you to come together and build uh, as a group. And uh, I have two projects. One is an apartment block where the, 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 the people are currently gathering funds to put together to buy the land. And another one is um, 20 plots, uh, quarter acre plots. Now, these are not very cheap, particularly in Nairobi. So if uh, you were to do traditionally where you go buy your own plot and build, you will have to incur so many uh, uh, common costs to do with security, uh, utility connection, water, and, and, and just, of course, you lose that whole sense of, of, of community. So in our practice, we are trying to uh, inculcate this idea that... Uh, for us to be sustainable as 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 a, as a as a culture, we need to start looking at how we can help each other and share the common costs. Uh, because, for instance, in Kenya, uh, public amenities are very rare. The the city is growing. For example, Nairobi is growing very rapidly. That that the council is not able to meet the needs. For example, good roads, uh, water connection, and power. 
um, something like about 10 minutes out of the CBD, there are some places there are no roads or there's no power or there's no water. So how do you get it? If you do it yourself, you'll find that the cost of connecting power and water, pulling the line all the way from about five kilometers away is so high. But if you come together as a group of about 20 people, that cost is split 20 times. And uh, so we are, we are currently pushing, and it's not something that uh, a lot of the clans, because now you are dealing with about 20 clans, you know, you, you are trying to scale up from one client's needs, and most residential clans are very, very uh, intricate needs. Now, uh, multiply that by 20. So for us, it's, it's a bigger task, uh, but we feel that as a company, it's a sustainable way to engage. And um, if, if we do it right, then it means that uh, it can become a, a replica that can be used elsewhere. And uh, the difference here is that because of economy is the main issue, so it's easy to sell, say, look, it's cheaper to build as a group than individually. So we showed them uh, what this friend of mine has done is that they did the structure, the shell together. And then they asked every individual to finish the house to their level of their economic uh, um, condition. So if you go to different houses inside, some houses you will find very different finishes because one of the members of the group had more money than others. But uh, the shell was, was slightly cheaper. So now when people see this, they are able to start buying into it. And um, we, we, in the industry, something we call uh, working with samples. Because uh, before a client approves anything, you need to show them, this is the tile, choose one. This is the tab, choose one. So in our case, we don't have a lot of case studies that, that can make people to accept it uh, very readily. But I think uh, looking at the younger pop, uh, group, pop, particularly the people who are uh, starting to get money, starting to save, young families that are looking for a place where they can call a home who do not have enough money to buy the expensive plots, they are accepting it because it is the own, it's the most logical way to go. Yeah, uh, on the, of course, the issue of sustainability, especially in developing countries, uh, the green is uh, almost, um, it's there, but it's not the most critical one. We start off with the issues of economies, for example, what is available and how you are able to sustain yourself with a very small uh, budget. And I would like to ask Louise, uh, we started from Germany in Heidelberg with this, uh, with Wayne's residential project um, with common areas and common spaces and, uh, and common life, we can say, to Georgia, interesting uh, insight as an architect in uh, the development of real estate uh, property of uh, Nairobi and uh, now we will move to Asia with you in particular Hong Kong we move to a very uh, and highly densely populated city and um, you are going to show us sustainability from a different perspective in particular from the, the sustainability of the development of heritage buildings and my first question to you is what is the origin in, of the idea and concept of sustainable development of heritage buildings in Hong Kong? Well the biggest challenge to heritage conservation in Hong Kong is its ever-growing population in a very limited space of land. With a population of over 7.5 million people all living in 426 square mile territory, this makes Hong Kong one of the most densely populated regions in the world. So it's not surprising since the 20th century that Hong Kong has relied heavily 
on land reclamation from its waters. And even Hong Kong's most iconic Victoria Harbour that you're seeing has not been excluded until the protection of the Harbour Ordinance, which came to force in 1997 and protected the surviving waters of the harbour from land reclamation projects. We have seen the disappearance of many heritage buildings, either as part of urban development or it was part of some necessary upgrade to like modern times, like my grandfather's house, which, like most houses in the village, was rebuilt with a more modern design. But the old house that had been part of my family's heritage is unfortunately gone and it's irrevocable and along with it the history and the loving memories you can't replicate the same experience and emotion from a photo album that's irreplaceable greener designs and more efficient energy use but these concepts can be expanded much much further so it wasn't until 2003 in a government policy recommendation report that identified six guiding principles which later became the blueprint of Hong Kong's future cultural heritage policies, including the need for initiatives to be people-orientated with a holistic approach and being community-driven. But 2003 was also the year that Hong Kong dealt with SARS, which was the first pandemic of the 21st century. And so there were even further delays until more recently when they established more dedicated authorities to see through the whole conservation process from identification of heritage buildings for cons conservation to its adaptive reuse and encourage community involvement in decision-making on what and how heritage buildings are to be conserved. Really like, uh, since we had Wayne, that is an actor and performer, and George is an architect, uh, you as lawyer, I think you can also give us uh, the legal framework uh, uh, to under better understand how does Hong Kong identify heritage buildings and also encourage community involvement to achieve goals for this sustainable development? Well, the four key words is protect, identify, grade, and revitalize, and I'll elaborate each in turn. Now, the Antiquities um, Advisory Board, which was created in 1976, is the statutory body to evaluate all buildings in Hong Kong and to recommend those with historical or architectural merit for listing as monuments. And then you'll have the Antiquities and Monuments Office, which also was established in 1976, is responsible for identifying, researching and grading heritage buildings. Now, as of May, uh, May 2020, there were 126 declared monuments in Hong Kong. In addition to declared monuments, the um, remaining historic buildings in Hong Kong can be categorized into three grades. Um, you'll see in the slide here, grade one buildings are those of outstanding merit, grade two are of special merit, and grade three are of some merit and preservation in some form would be desirable. Now to determine the grading, um, each building is assessed against the, uh, specific criteria based on historic interest, architectural merit, group value, which means they look at separate or connected buildings which display a higher value when conserved as a whole, social value, and local interest such as a landmark then there's authenticity and finally rarity. So finally, revitalizing. Once heritage buildings are identified or graded, one of the most important initiatives of the Commissioner for Heritage's Office is implementing the revitalizing historic buildings through partnership scheme, which promotes active promoting, um, the, promotes active public participation in the uh, conservation of historic buildings for both monuments and graded buildings. And it invites non-profit organizations to apply for the adaptive reuse of government-owned historic buildings to run social enterprises. You have listened to Spotlight Asia, 
a podcast produced by Aisha for young lawyers across the globe. Don't miss the next episode.